Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. My name is Patrick J. McGinnis, and I coined the term FOMO. That's short for fear of missing out, and it's why some people end up following the crowd. But we're not like them. We're part of a new species that isn't afraid to do things differently. I call us FOMO sapiens. And this is the show where you'll meet people like us, phenomenal FOMO sapiens, to learn how they find the courage and the ideas to live exceptional lives. FOMO. FOMO. Hey everybody, welcome back to FOMO Sapiens, the show for people who don't just follow the crowd, but instead take their own path to success in business and in life. I'm your host, Patrick J. McGinnis, venture capitalist by day, author and podcaster by night, and FOMO Sapiens 24-7. We are in Bold Thinkers Month, people who don't just think in, you know, black and white and gray, they think in bright colors. And my guest today is a very good example of that. His name is Khalid Kataili. He is the founder and CEO of Legacy. Now, Legacy is a digital fertility clinic for men that's helping to change the outdated view that fertility is a quote unquote woman's issue. And Legacy is a graduate of Harvard's Innovation Labs and of Y Combinator, and it's raised over $50 million from top-tier investors like Firstmark Capital and Bain Capital Ventures, but also from celebrities like Justin Bieber and DJ Khaled. Now, Khaled, not the DJ, the founder, previously worked at the World Economic Forum, aka Davos, and was a healthcare consultant at Oliver Wyman, and he studied public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School, and he did his undergrad at McGill in Montreal. Now, I met Khaled a couple of years back because he actually asked me to come on the podcast of Legacy, and then he never ran the episode. So that is somewhere in some sort of vault. But in our conversation, I was super impressed with him. I just thought this guy does things totally different than anybody else I know. And we ended up having lunch in New York and really hit it off. And then later on, he decided to move to New York, and I hooked him up with a friend of mine at New York Casas Real Estate, my friend Philip Horjik. Go check that out, New York Casas, nycasas.com. And Philip helped him find a really nice apartment. So we're gonna, re- he references that early in the interview. That's why I wanted to tell you that. And just to give a shout out to Philip. Now in this episode, you're gonna learn a couple of things. The first is you're gonna hear what inspired Khaled to launch a business that focuses on male reproductive health and his origin story and how he tells it. And we talked about this on Phil Mondays. It's really powerful. Number two, we're going to learn how to talk about a sensitive topic in a way that resonates with people. I mean, in this episode, we're going to be talking about male reproductive stuff, and it can be uncomfortable, but once you get past the shock of saying a couple of words, 
It's what people live with. And so I think it's really important to get into that. And finally, we're going to talk about how Holland found the confidence and the path to raise money from folks like The Weeknd, Justin Bieber, Orlando Bloom, these people who are on his cap table. So he has great stories about that. You will enjoy them, I am certain. Now, in terms of my small ask, again, this is the month of merch. Go to FOMOSapiens.com slash store where you can find some pretty cool stuff, hats, t-shirts, mugs, stickers with FOMO on them. You can wear them around town. People will say, where did you get that? And then you can say, well, go to FOMOSapiens.com slash store because that's what happens to me. And I am also very happy if you had feedback, if you say, you know what, Patrick, that hat, I love it. I hate it. I'm indifferent. Just let me know because I can always make things better. All right, and now it is time to get to the interview. And as you know, I always ask the first question. So I started our conversation by asking Khaled this. What's a formative decision that you've had to make to get to where you are today? Great. Well, Patrick, thank you so much for having me. And it's uh, great to be with you again. And thank you for helping me find this beautiful apartment, uh, which you have not yet visited. So when I think about formative decisions, I first start by you know just thinking about what is the overall framework for decision-making in my life um, and that framework is that inertia is one of the most dangerous things that you can have in your life. It's very easy to keep doing what you're doing because you're already doing it, right? An object in motion stays in motion and an object at rest stays at rest. And so there have been several periods of my life where I've broken free of the inertia. And sometimes you have to make difficult decisions to do that. And the formative decision for me was really the decision to leave a comfortable, high-performing, you know, high potential job at the World Economic Forum in Geneva, Switzerland, um, to turn down a lucrative promotion and make the decision to take the leap of faith. Um, that's the term I use often. I use it when hiring candidates. I say, are you ready to take the leap of faith? Because it is. And the leap of faith is really about jumping into the unknown, knowing that you have all the resources you possibly could have at this moment, but having no idea how you're going to get there. And the decision to leave my job, leave the city, move back to Boston, change apartments. I left my cat behind. She was in Geneva, although I did come back to get her seven months later, smuggled her across the border from Canada, but that's a story for another <laughs> podcast. Um, but it was a decision to say, look, I'm comfortable with the uncertainty of what's going to happen over the next few years. I'm comfortable with the financial risks that this entails. And I am comfortable with the embarrassment of public failure, if that's where life is going to take me. I love that. Now, everybody's getting to know you a little bit. This is a man who, in one answer, combines Newtonian physics with cat smuggling. <laughs> and, and, and that's why you're on FOMO Sapiens, buddy. So you're building a company, Legacy, in a space that is uncomfortable for people to talk about. We're talking about male fertility. We're talking about sperm. I'm going to say it because we're going to be talking about that today. So let's just get that yeah. out of the way. Let's all get comfortable. And it really, I mean, I'm thinking about it when I was kind of preparing today. It's like, it's kind of like you're going to the root of all male insecurity with this product, right? So before we get into the many aspects of this product and this company, just start with how did you come up with this idea? Whew. Well, that is a great question, Patrick. And I'm going to take you back a few years. Mm -hmm. It all starts in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where all good stories begin. I had sold my soul to management consulting for a few years, and this was actually my last client project uh, we were working for. I can't share who we were working for, but it was an American airline. Mm -hmm. And I was the most junior person on the team. We were a team of four. And it was, you know, 7, 7.30 in the morning. We're driving to the client site. 
and we decided to make a Starbucks run, pick up a few coffees. So as the most junior person on the team, I offered to jump out and pick up our coffees and teas. And you know, I want to emphasize as I did this that these were scaldingly hot teas. These were freshly brewed coffees. These were generally, I would say, the temperature range was quite high. So pick up those coffees. Um, I jump back in the passenger seat of the car, and we are driving down the Tulsa Highway. As we're doing so, and actually inertia comes back into play here, because the car in front of us braked very suddenly, which meant that we needed to brake very suddenly, which meant that those scaldingly hot beverages spilled all over my lap, because the forces of inertia mean that these objects are going to be, you know, they, they took their leap of faith. Um, that spilled all over my lap. I got second degree burns. Oh. And in retrospect, the story was funny to everyone but me because I was wearing a full suit and tie and the fabric of my pants was absorbing the scalding hot liquid. It was ripping the skin clean off my thighs. And so I ripped my suit pants off. And so there I am standing by the side of the Tulsa highway, grabbing my crotch, no pants on, but otherwise from the waist up, looking like I'm ready to go and do some business, <laughs> you know, dress shirt, tie, blazer, the whole nine yards. So we rushed me to the ER. Um, they didn't have a burn unit in Tulsa. Uh, and because it's in America, the first question, of course, they asked me while I was in agonizing pain was whether I had insurance or not. Um, long story short, I got second degree burns that day. Um, and thankfully, second degree burns do heal fully. It took about a month and a half, but it was a very painful healing process. And so um, when I met someone a few months later who described the process of freezing his sperm before starting chemotherapy, it really was a light bulb moment where I had just had this accident, you know, and, and anyone who goes through an accident is thinking to themselves, well, thank God this wasn't worse, right? Thank God I can still have kids in the future. And, you know, you, you think to yourself in that moment, well, what could I have done differently? And it clicked for me that really I wish I had, you know, I wish that I had frozen my sperm and that I still had the opportunity to do so. And so I looked up the local sperm bank uh, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, which is where I was at the time, went into what they call collect the specimen, went through maybe the most awkward experience of my life um, and walked away from that thinking, where is this disconnect between how profound it feels to preserve my ability to have kids and to know that I will be able to start a family someday with how incredibly awkward and uncomfortable this whole process is? Why has nobody thought about normalizing this? And I realize, and I'll come back to the earlier part of your statement, which is for many men, masculinity equals virility. Men are afraid that they might be shooting blanks. Which, by the way, for 99 to 99.5% of the population is not going to be an issue. But there is this inherent fear and there's stigma more broadly when it comes to fertility and infertility. Because we know that infertility is actually much more common than anyone even knows about. So about one in six or one in seven heterosexual couples will face infertility. They will not be able to conceive for 12 months or longer. And so in a world where we know this to be true, in a world where we now know that infertility is just as likely to be from the male partner as the female partner, but in a world where you still have the stigma, a big part of my role is taking a word like sperm and making it something that you can say on a podcast without thinking twice. And, you know, I'll just share one more thought, which is something happened last week that I have been waiting for for four years. So I, as you can imagine, have a, you know, 
strange social life when it comes to, you know, talking about what I do. Male fertility is, you know, it's not the normal dinner conversation topic. Uh, but one of my favorite questions to ask guys that I've just met, effectively strangers, is whether they've frozen their sperm. Because everyone should be freezing their sperm. So I was at an event last week in New York, and I run into this guy at, a, um, at an event. And, you know, 20 seconds into meeting him, I ask him, you know, so, buddy, have you, have you frozen your sperm yet? And he gives me the best answer of all time. He says, no, but everyone's talking about it. And that was the moment I knew that we had just hit our inflection point. FOMO. Tudo bem, meus queridos FOMO sapiens? Now that right there was Portuguese. And as you know, I love speaking foreign languages. But I'm not alone. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off that list with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Now, FOMO Sapiens, you know I speak four languages, and it takes work to stay on top of them, especially with French. C'est difficile. But with Babbel, I'm able to practice practical conversations that I can actually use in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash FOMO. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash FOMO. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash FOMO. Rules and restrictions may apply. FOMO. It is interesting that it is getting into the zeitgeist because I think traditionally, and I know we have about half of our listeners are women, so ladies out there, women always take the blame for this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And it's not mm -hmm. fair. And it's not the problem of the woman. It's the problem of the couple. And that means that it very way, may well correspond to the man as well. Now, this idea, okay, so great. Uh, that story's very compelling. And when I hear it, you know, you're taking me on this journey, but then the part of me that's like the guy who knows about entrepreneurship and the skeptical guy is like, okay, that's a nice story. But somehow this guy, and by the way, you're silver tongued, you know how to tell a story, but this guy managed to go from working at the world economic forum in the middle East, right? Overseeing this entrepreneurship and, and all these relationships, which is by the way, an awesome job. But somehow he goes from doing that to then going to Y Combinator, which is the world's most illustrious, famous, awesomest startup uh, accelerator in Silicon Valley. And it looks just like it's like this little, you know, it's sort of like, well, you, one day you woke up, you had an idea, and then you're just suddenly in Y Combinator. And mm -hmm. I know that isn't, you know, the narrative. Yeah. The truth is, is there's a lot yeah. more to it. So people who hear this story, and I know some of you are like, I've had this idea, these ideas that pop into my head. I, I may not be from the industry, I may not be an expert, but I have these ideas. How do I go from a really cool idea about revolutionizing something that I don't necessarily have any sort of experience in, how do I go from that to like building a company, raising money, and actually doing something in the space? I know that's a big question, but like yeah. what was your lodestar that gave you the confidence to actually make all these moves. Yeah. I mean, we, we love a big load star. Um, you know, and so <laughs> what, what I would say here is <laughs> this is a family show, man. You, you I don't know what you're talking about. Okay, continue. Um, so, so I want to go back to the concept of taking the leap of faith mm -hmm. because in my case, it was both true and not true. And I had very few friends who were entrepreneurs. 
um, you know, I, I didn't come from networks that were particularly entrepreneurship. I basically had one friend, he had gone through Y Combinator and he was in many ways my mentor, mm -hmm. uh, Karn. And when I had the idea for legacy, what he said to me was just do it, just start it, just start the company. Don't wait. And I did the exact opposite of what he suggested. I waited for years. And actually when I had the idea, I was just starting my master's at the Harvard Kennedy School. And I said to myself, look, I'm no Mark Zuckerberg. I'm not smart enough to drop out of Harvard and start a successful company. Um, and so I would rather wait. Let me develop the idea. Let me learn more. And I started talking to my friends about it. They they started calling me the sperm king. As you can imagine, I got a lot of jokes <laughs> over <Good>. the years. <laughs> it is a nickname I have since embraced. I do own the URL spermking.com. And um, I really did a lot of research. I started studying sperm evenings and weekends. I started talking to experts in the field. I actually took a really long time to get started. It's not advice that I would give to someone else, but I, I do want to call this out for a couple of reasons. The first of which is these stories are never as clean and easy as they look on paper. If you just read our bio, you would say, wow, this is a super smooth story. The reality is it took me years to actually launch the company. I was terrified of launching the company. I probably should have launched the company a year or two years before when I actually did. And part of that was just fear of the unknown and uncertainty. Uh, and part of it, frankly, is inertia. But to anyone who's who is out there and does have this great idea, the first thing I'll say, and I hate to say this, but it is true, ideas are worthless. And in fact, in the early days of Legacy, we had two competitors who came in, fast followers, took a lot of our ideas, and basically replicated them. And we out-executed them over the years to come. The fact that we both had the same idea slash they stole our idea. The fact that we were working on the same idea was actually not that relevant. In the startup world, execution is the only thing that matters. And even if you're not coming from that industry, there's actually a unique perspective that you bring. Um, and in fact, some of the most successful entrepreneurs are coming from adjacent industries or different industries who can look at a new world with a new, fresh perspective. Because I hadn't spend, spent decades in the fertility industry. I didn't have this idea of, okay, that's the way we always do things. And that is liberating. It's liberating, right? Because you don't have any preconceived notions. And you can come in, you can blow everything up and say, okay, let's start from scratch. How would I do it? And so if you are thinking about an idea, I would actually give you the same advice that my friend Karn gave to me, which is just do it. Because you don't want to be the person in, you know, in, in your later um, in your later life saying, oh, I had this great idea and it would have been a billion dollar company had I, if I had just done it. You know, it was, I really wanted to do it. You don't want to be that, you know, crotchety old person um, talking about what could have been. So just do just do. And if it fails, that's okay. Okay, Holly, great. I love that. I'm inspired. But <laughs> you got to get people to give you money. And listen, it's clear you're a superpower. One of your superpowers is like, you know how to express yourself and tell this story of this business in a way that like, I, I want to write a check. But that is that is still, you know, getting people to separate their money from their pocket. That's a whole other thing. So talk about that. Yeah. Whew. Um, a lot to cover here. I'll, I'll start by mm -hmm. saying that the first amount of money that I raised was about $130,000, uh, really just from my extended network. People that had known me for a few years that believed enough in me personally, you know, I put together a pitch deck. I had no company at that point, but they said, look, I want to give you money. I believe that this will go on to be something big. 
And what's wild about this part of the company was when the first person asked me about investing, I, I hadn't had any investment. And they said, okay, I want to put in like $20,000. What's the valuation? And I'm thinking quickly to myself, I'm like, okay, the idea of running a million dollar company sounds really nice. So I say to them, it's a million dollars. And they didn't even blink. They wrote a check, $20,000. I'm like, great, I'm undervaluing the company. <laughs> next person asks, <laughs> <It's> stressful. <laughs> the next day, someone else asks, I feel this someone asks, what's the valuation? I want to write you a $20,000 check. I'm like, it's $2 million. They said, great. They didn't even blink. I'm like, I'm undervaluing the company. Next person asks to invest. And again, by this point, we were building momentum. So third person asks, what's the valuation? I'm like, $3 million. And they like half blinked. I'm like, okay, I still have I still have room here. Next couple of investors, $5 million valuation. And ultimately, I bumped that up to an $8 million valuation. I do not recommend doing this to anyone. <laughs> you should have a fixed idea of what valuation you want in mind. But you have to separate out the very, you know, for many people, $5 million is a lot of money. It's an obscene amount of money for a company that literally does not exist relative to how an mm -hmm. investor thinks about the opportunity, which is if you're building a $500 million company, they're going to make 100 times return. And so that is just in the early days, a lot of it is about tapping into your personal professional network, people who believe in you, people who know you. And even if you're taking one, two, three, five thousand $5,000 checks, this all adds up. FOMO. FOMO. All right, so that's how you got started, but you've raised over $50 million, mm -hmm. and I've been watching you. I, we had lunch right after you closed your last mm -hmm. round, and you look tired. I mean, it's no joke, yeah. right? I was like, what happened yeah. to him? You look great today. But you also, <laughs> I remember, when you first were raising early on, we had met, and you and I thought it was a great idea, mm -hmm. and you said, well, I actually thought about including you in the round, but unfortunately, there was no room, mm -hmm. which, by the way, founders, yep. don't say that to people, because it makes them feel... <laughs> FOMO, I wanted you. I right? know. It's, all about the FOMO. Why are you turning the FOMO against me? That's not nice. But anyway, talk about how you get these big yeah. players yeah. in. Yeah. Well, I am I am sad it didn't work out. I did want you in, but I'm I'm secretly You can just yeah. give me shares like any just like a stock option. Advisory shares. That just happened. Um, so look, bring, bringing on bringing on institutional investors is a very different world than bringing on friends and family. Friends and family like you mm. want you to succeed care about you. And if they happen to make a lot of money, great. But actually, more than anything, they're just supporting you and they believe in you. Institutional investors could not care less about you as a human being. Um, I think of it in very simple Marxist terms. They are the capital, we are the labor. And there's nothing wrong with that as long as you're clear-eyed and going into it. An investor invests in you because they want to make 100 times their money. And they are going to make 100 bets. And they're going to recognize that one or two of the companies in their portfolio is going to drive the vast majority of their returns. That's the next Facebook, Uber, what have you. And so you need to make sure that you're selling that big vision. And so when we spoke to Bain Capital Ventures in early 2019, and they ultimately wrote us our first million dollar check, um, they asked us, where do you want to go? And we laid out a plan that was credible to build a multi-billion dollar company. And so after Y Combinator, you know, we we reached out to further investors. So we brought on Bill Maris from Section 32, for example, and we ended up raising a few million dollars then. Um, we then raised another $10 million from Firstmark Capital. That's Rick Heitzman at Firstmark Capital, who funded some of the, you know, multi-billion dollar companies like Roman. Um, and then we raised a $25 million Series B, led once again by Bain Capital Ventures, who wanted to come back in and double down on the company. Now, these numbers sound great. Um, what you don't know or what you don't see is that each fundraise is uniquely traumatizing. I have not walked away from a single one of these fundraises unscathed. In fact, during our Series B fundraise, 
I was so stressed out that for a month and a half, and by the way, I'm a night owl, I sleep late, I wake up late, I start my work days at 10 or 11 a.m. For a month and a half straight, I started waking up at 7 a.m. sharp, like clockwork, no matter what. Even if I went out till three in the morning the night before, even if I, you know, didn't matter, like a like clockwork every morning. And it took me almost two months to shake that once the stress had finally subsided. When we were raising our Series A, I was literally getting ulcers because of how stressed out I was during the process. I wasn't eating. I wasn't sleeping. I was drinking caffeine left, right, and center. Um, the same with our the same with our seed. I, I mean, when we were raising our seed, I, t- I spoke with maybe 70 investors to start. And I hadn't learned the vocabulary at that point. I didn't know how to say LTV to CAC. I barely knew what a TAM was. I could say things in normal English, but not the words that investors wanted to hear. And so every single fundraise was uniquely traumatizing. But but you basically have to wake up every morning knowing you're going to get punched in the face, knowing that you're going to show someone your beautiful baby that you've built yourself, and they're going to call your baby ugly. And you're going to say, that's okay. I'm going to find the right person to take care of my baby. And you take enough punches in the face, you get knocked down enough times, you get up enough times, and eventually you will make your way, you will stumble your way towards those larger checks from institutional investors. I love the reality check you just gave about venture capital because it's 100% correct, by the no. way. there. Are, if you're going in to raise money with this idea that somehow these people are going to give you money and then you'll all be best friends, no. their job is to work you yep. to the bone yep. to maximize the return yep. so that they can then take all that money they make and put it into a Hamptons yep. house. And, and that's what it is. And so, and it, but it, that's okay. That's, that's just the system. And if, if you know it going in, then you won't sentimentalize these relationships. And maybe you do become friends because, you know, yep. if you make somebody a lot of money, they're they going like to invite you. you to their holiday to their Hamptons party, home. right? Exactly. Now you did something else mm. that is kind of cool. Mm. And I want to do the reality check here too. This is really, I appreciate you getting into the, the nitty gritty on this, yep. which is you raise from some celebrities, mm-hmm. The Weeknd, Justin Bieber, yep. Orlando Bloom. Talk about how somebody does that. What is the value for you? And do you now get to hang out with Justin Bieber <laughs> and Haley? I mean, what is that? You know, what what is it? What's it really like? Or is it just like, you know, that's it. You just put it in page six and move on. Uh, so we were in page six with Justin Bieber. We did raise a celebrity yeah. round of a few million dollars from Justin Bieber, DJ Khaled, Orlando Bloom, The Weeknd, a few other folks. Um, you know, and, and, and what, what I would say is this. Celebrities have a lot of brand risk. They don't want to put they, they care less about the money, right? If someone's putting in a few hundred thousand dollars into your company, they're wealthy enough that that's not going to move the needle. But if you are the next, you know, Theranos, if you are the next, you know, high profile failure, if you're going to do anything that is going to risk their brand, they're not going to touch you with a 10 foot pole. And so a lot of this is about relationship building with their agents, making sure their agents understand you, making sure your agents understand the mission behind what you do. And obviously, it's easier to do this if you're a consumer facing company than if you're, you know, B2B SaaS, right? Justin Bieber is going to find the topic of parenthood, fatherhood, fertility, much more interesting when he's in a long-term relationship. He's thinking about his own kids and when he might want to do that someday. And he wants to be a good dad, right? Whereas I'm telling him, hey, we're an enterprise resource planning software that's going to make you work 10% more efficiently. You know, he's not going to put that on his next record. And so part of it is de-risking by building the relationship with the agents, making clear that you have a big mission and showing that you are a brand that is not going to fail. And I'll tell you actually one of the secrets what we did is we raised our celebrity round between our Series A and our Series B at a valuation that was halfway between those two points. 
recognizing that we were going to raise our Series B in a few months. So they were effectively getting a discount while still putting their very valuable brand and brand names. And we can't comment on whether or not they froze their sperm with us. Um, but you yeah. know, in a world where they were, there would also be very valuable sperm that was frozen. But you get to hang out. I can't comment on the nature of our relationship. <laughs> oh, come on. Okay, you'll tell me later. Um, and I'll tell all of you. <laughs> so so now we, we mentioned Roman a little earlier. And I read in the press that they're they're getting into the space you're in and they're a big player. And you know, that's kind of like a thing that freaks out entrepreneurs. Yeah. You know, if you're thinking about existential things. So how do you I mean you mentioned that you were having trouble sleeping. By the way, I recommend that you get a Barabee blanket. The founder <laughs> you of actually told me, you told me this. The last, the last know, time we talked, you told Get yourself me one. Yeah, the I, I, blanket. I, I'm just telling you, try it out. But anyway, how do you think about that? How does it not keep you up yeah. all night? Yeah, I actually love that Roman's entering into our space. And by the way, they're not the only ones. There's probably three or four other players that have been, you know, either trying to acquire us as Roman was as well, um, or mm -hmm. simply entering into the space because they see what an attractive and fast growing market it is. And so what I would say is you have to move. Of course, there's this initial feeling of like, oh, crap, big players are moving into my space. What does this mean? Right. If Amazon announced tomorrow that they're getting into the male fertility business, you are going to pause and hesitate for a second. That said, you move past the fear and you get to the excitement. Because what this does and what this has already done is it validates the size and the traction and the trajectory of the space. It raises awareness. It increases education. The more players, the better. And when you know that you are as strongly positioned as we are, right? When you have the level of vertical integration that we have, when you have the strong team that we do, the brand that we've developed, that's going to be very difficult for anyone to come in and crack. And from my perspective, we are a hundred times more likely to implode than we are to lose out to competitors. And in fact, this is one of the things that Y Combinator teaches you. You should never really care about what competitors are doing. If they're doing something that you want to, you know, copy yourself, great, learn from them. But never fear competitors. You need to make sure that you are as strong as possible, that you are executing day in and day out. Because if I'm doing 1% better than any other company every single day, right, this concept of 1.01 .01 to the power of 365 gets you to 37 point something, right? You will be miles ahead by the end of the year as long as you stay focused. You know, you just hit on one of my favorite things to say, which is that fear-based decision-making leads to suboptimal outcomes yep. and suboptimal incomes. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. it is so true what you say. Like, I didn't hear the fear. I mean, I would be yeah. freaking out, right? And, yeah. and the fact that you're able to see beyond that, because by the way, being fearful, it's not going to take you in the right direction. You're not going to end up doing better things. Yeah. You need to be Stick to your plan, be bold, obviously factor in the information, but yeah. then move forward. So that that's extremely valuable advice. Now, if you want to learn more about legacy, you can go to givelegacy.com. You can also check them out on Instagram at givelegacyinc and on Twitter at legacy. All right. Holly Katayli, founder of Legacy. Thanks for being here. Mr. McGinnis, thank you for having me. If you like today's show, please be sure to rate it and recommend it to your friends. And as always, you can find me on Instagram at Patrick J. McGinnis, on Twitter at PJ McGinnis, and on the web at FOMOSapiens.com or PatrickMcGinnis.com, where you can get all kinds of free resources to live a more decisive and entrepreneurial life. FOMO Sapiens is recorded in New York City. Theme music is by Mike McGinnis, and editing and post-production is by Josh Elstrom. FOMO.
If you like today's show, please be sure to rate it and recommend it to your friends. And as always, you can find me at FOMOSapiens.com and at PatrickMcGinnis.com. To advertise on FOMO Sapiens, reach out to contact at FOMOSapiens.com. FOMO.